You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 171. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. I truly appreciate it. Today on the show, I want to address, discuss, ruminate on the matter of spiritual warfare. It is something that has become a point of emphasis for myself, something I've been called to participate in this year in particular, more than in previous years. And it's been, well, really since I was a missionary in the mid-1990s and living in Mexico, and then in 2001 when I was in Guatemala, where I was introduced to spiritual warfare firsthand, encountered the demonic, encountered evil spirits firsthand. And yet, once you enter into the pastoral ministry, something happens, at least in the mainline denominations in particular. But I've also seen this in Bible colleges and in other places. And that is, there is such an emphasis on the rational, on objectifying knowledge, for example. There's so much emphasis on getting it right, preaching correctly, getting doctrine correct, living correctly, teaching correctly, pastoral counseling correctly. Everything is about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Now, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I do believe that education is vitally important, especially in matters of faith that learning the languages so that one can read the primary texts in the Hebrew and in the Greek, even in the Latin, the German, the Spanish, Italian, and French, I think this is important, so that you can translate the texts for yourself and not have to rely on secondary or tertiary sources. I think it is important to learn about doctrine, that is teaching, and that correct doctrine is very, very important because it is how one protects oneself and one's congregation from the wolves. If we are not well-versed in Christian doctrine, in the history of the church, in the history of Christian doctrine, if we don't understand the various debates and arguments that have broken out within the church over the millennia, as regards teaching, who is Jesus? What are the works of the Holy Spirit? Who is God the Father? These are all debates that have broken out over the years within the churches. And I think this is a vital point of emphasis then when it comes to learning, and it is a natural outgrowth of the study of the Bible and Scripture. I think it's important to know what you're going to say when you step into the pulpit, know how you're going to say it, and know when to sit down. These are vitally important things as a pastor. You don't want the sermon to turn into a hostage situation. And yet... Having said all that, having gone through all that myself, what I see in the many nine denominations today, I see amongst evangelicals and non-denominational churches today, is a kind of a la carte treatment of Christian doctrine, of the church, of the preaching and teaching of the church, and that more and more I see the church adapting itself to culture, and the culture is demonic. This isn't new. It didn't just happen in the past five years. It's been going on since before the Second World War even. Again, it's a constant battle within the churches 
to protect the preaching of the gospel, to protect the confession of our Christian faith, to battle against our own sinful flesh, against this evil world, and against the devil. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's promised to us by Jesus in the Bible. There is precedent in both the Old and New Testaments for this. It's everywhere. And yet, as my friend Stephen noted, since the 1970s, after World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and we could even include World War I in that, but since the 1970s, the United States lost its stomach for war. It didn't want to talk about war. It didn't want to talk about conflict. And as a consequence, when folks came into church, they didn't want to talk about the church militant. They didn't want to talk about a militant gospel that is contrary to the philosophies and ideologies of the world. And so as a consequence, because we lost our stomach for war, we didn't want to talk about war or conflict anymore, the churches adapted their message to the expectations then of the people coming through the doors on Sunday. And so the militant gospel went away and the gospel became something that was intended to comfort and to console and to, in a way, coddle Christians, to tell them that everything's going to be okay and that God loves you just the way you are. And that no matter what you do, no matter how you live, Jesus forgives you no matter what. No repentance, no correction, no discipline, but simply you're forgiven, don't worry about it. So the preaching and the teaching of the church then began to conform to this idea, this attitude coming through the door on Sundays. And more and more then the churches conformed themselves to the culture, which is always a danger sign, should set off all the alarm bells because we are told to not be conformed to the ways of this world. That we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not conforming ourselves to the world. And now, especially the past five years, but especially since 2020, when so many churches closed and locked their doors and did not meet anymore because the government, the state, the mayor, the city council told them to, they did not stand against politics. They did not stand against ideology. They did not stand against culture. Instead, they walked along with it. They did what they were told without question. And for the most part, people were okay with that. Christians, as they called themselves, were okay with that. And then folks like myself, who reopened their churches, who participated in lawsuits against the governor and the attorney general to reopen all of the churches in my state, we were vilified. We were excommunicated by other pastors. We were demonized by people for stepping out of line and as was said, threatening the lives of everyone. And yet the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that Christians are afraid to die, which is the greatest of all ironies because as Christians, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead in life everlasting. So we do not willfully commit suicide, but at the same time, we also don't willfully run away from our death. Because death, within the Christian context, is the gate, the door, the portal to eternal life. And so Christians that come to church on Sunday 
and confessed that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting showed with their actions and with their words that they don't actually believe that. And on top of that, then, this year in particular, as I noted, I've been called in three different times to address, to counsel, to pray over people who are afflicted by evil spirits, Christians who are afflicted by evil spirits. More and more I see this. Not only that the culture has been enveloped by the demonic, but that Christians now are being attacked, afflicted, and ridden around by evil spirits. And they don't even know what's happening to them because they lack discernment. They don't pray for discernment because they don't read their Bibles and they don't know then that discernment is a gift, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. They don't pray for discernment. They don't pray for eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And like I said, they don't read the Bible. They're not grounded in God's Word. They're not educated. They don't pray. They don't pray for themselves. They don't pray with their family. They don't model the Christian faith, the Christian confession of faith for their children or in their community. They don't preach the gospel to others. They don't ask to pray with others, no matter who they are. And by and large, Christians have self-isolated within their churches one or two hours a week, and then check off that box, check off the God box, check off the worship box, check, check off the good Christian box, and then they go about their lives as if that's all Christianity is. And what I see then as a pastor, as a Christian man, as a leader, but also as an adult convert to the Christian faith, what I see is that the devil and his angels have infiltrated the churches. And unfortunately, tragically, God has taken his word away from the American churches. As Martin Luther once said, the word of God is like a passing rain shower. And I think the American churches have received their rain, and because of our unrepentance, because of our failure to withstand the influence and the attacks of culture, God has taken his word away from us. As a consequence, there is a remnant that is left, because as God's word says, there is always a remnant, but that that remnant then is all that remains of the church, the church of Christ, and that all of these other buildings, all of these other gatherings of people who call themselves Christian but don't read their Bible, don't live in God's word, don't pray, don't repent and believe the good news about Jesus Christ, these folks have been deluded, disillusioned. They are in the strong man's house, and they don't even know it because their pastors, their ministers, their priests, they live there also. And so they march in step with the culture. They conform their thinking and their behaviors to the culture. And then that is aped from the pulpit come Sunday morning. The Bible studies do not convict. They do not challenge. People are not pressured. And so faith in Christ degrades. Why do I need Jesus when everything's going just fine? Why do I need Jesus when I have all that I could ever wish for? Why do I need Jesus when I have the state to take care of me, when I have celebrities and athletes and experts to tell me what to think and, and what to say and how to behave? Why do I even need to go to church on Sunday? Can't I just believe in God and then I'll go to heaven when I die? These are not Christian teachings. These are pagan teachings masked as Christian doctrine. And so in my work for spotterup.com, one of the things that I do now 
because I write two or three articles a week for them. At least one of the articles then deals with the conversation about spiritual warfare, about being a Christian yet being disenfranchised, not having a, a pastor or a priest, not having a church that you attend, not feeling like you fit in in a Christian congregation because you're reading your Bible regularly, you're praying regularly, you're walking the path regularly in fear, in humility, and you go to church on Sunday and you look around and you listen to the conversations and you hear the sermon, you sing the songs and the hymns, you pray the prayers, and yet they ring hollow or at the very least they raise questions and the people don't relate to you and you go to talk to your priest or your pastor and he can't seem to understand and he feeds you pablum and trite cliches and platitudes, which isn't what you're looking for. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is power. It is dynamis in Greek. It is dynamite. That's where we get the word from, dynamite, dynamis, power, explosive power. Because in the Christian confession, we believe that God's word has power because it is God. God's word is Jesus, John chapter 1. And therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ has power apart from my strength, my effort, or yours. But we no longer trust God's word. We no longer trust that it has power in and of itself. And because of that, we don't preach it. We don't teach it. We don't pray it. We don't meditate on it. We don't seek to walk that path because we don't believe what it claims for itself. And as a consequence, there is no spiritual war because in order for there to be a war, two sides have to fight. So what do you call it when one side is doing all of the fighting and conquering and defeating and the other side just lays there and allows itself to be conquered? Or to put it a different way in terms of the remnant, I was talking with my friend Mike the other day and he noted that during the Nazi occupation of France in World War II, about 2% of the French population were actively engaged in rebellion. They were actively out there blowing up supply lines, attacking German soldiers, about 2% of the population. Which means then, when we watch those videos, those movies, those films, you know, after the war, after France was liberated, we see those pictures of French men and women surrounding young women in the town square. And these young women are dragged out of their homes. Why? Because they shacked up with Nazis during the war. That's how they survived. They shacked up with Nazis. And for their crime, for their sin of giving their bodies to these Nazi soldiers, they had their hair pulled out, shaved off. They were stripped down to their underwear and then they were excommunicated, excommunicated from the community and sent packing. They had to walk wherever, go find another life somewhere else. And God help you if you were, you were a young woman who had a child with a Nazi. That was double damnation, double indemnity. And yet, think about this then. If only 2% of the French population, the remnant of the French population, if they were the ones actively engaged in rebellion, they refused, they were fighting guerrilla warfare against the Nazis, and 98% of the French population simply shut up and did what they were told by the Nazis. Why then were all of these people, none of which probably in these pictures, in these films, most of, let's say, let's say a majority, right? A majority of them weren't engaged in the resistance. They weren't fighting guerrilla warfare. 
they were doing what they were told so they could survive. Why then would they drag these young women out into the street and rip out their hair and strip them naked and spit on them and curse them and excommunicate them from the community? Well, they scapegoated them because of their own sin and because they could not find absolution for their sin because they felt the judgment after the fact of their conformity, of their docility, of their unconditioning obedience to the Nazi regime because they did not fight back. They then isolated, triangulated, and noted, okay, these people are the worst of the worst of the worst in our communities. So let's target them. Let's drag them out into the street and make a public example of them. Let's scapegoat them. And what that word means, scapegoat, again, it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the Bible. The scapegoat was once a year, the people would put all of their sins on this goat, this scapegoat, and send it out into the wilderness as an act of repentance and contrition and faith. That this is a summation of all of our sin over the past year. When we put it on this, this animal, this symbol of our sin and our repentance, and then we send it out into the wilderness to die. And that symbolizes then that our sin is being taken away from us by God and it is to being taken away and being put to death. So we do that in a secular sense then. That's what the French did after the war, after they were liberated. The French people could not ask for absolution for themselves because that would mean that they were culpable in all of the atrocities that took place, not only in France, but across Europe. So rather than take responsibility for the consequences of their actions, rather than collectively come together, confess their sin, and seek absolution from one of God's preachers, rather than go into the churches and kneel and say, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and then receive the absolution from God through the mouth of his preachers, instead of repenting and going to Jesus and kneeling before the cross to receive forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, to receive his body and blood for the forgiveness of sin, they would drag young women out in the streets and abuse and torture and molest them and then excommunicate them as a scapegoat. And then they went on about their lives and said, we're never going to talk about this again. That's what I see happening in the Christian churches today in the United States. Rather than turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness through his body and blood, through his sacrifice, his suffering, death, and resurrection, what we're doing is turning on each other. And we're doing it in the name of the church. We're doing it in the name of doctrine. We're doing it in the name of comfort and consolation and being coddled. We're doing it because we don't want to acknowledge that for decades, the churches, the Christians, have conformed to the ways of the world, that they have bent a knee to culture, and that they worship the state as a god. So rather than repent and return to the Lord their God, they continue in their sin, which is then why God has taken his word away from the churches, why he has left a remnant, the 2%, let's call them. It's why our culture has become demonic and openly, demonstrably demonic. It's not even hiding anymore. It's why our government and our politicians have become demonic. It's why evil spirits are running loose in our culture. And the churches, by and large, have nothing to say about this. Shout out to Gillespie Coffee, my favorite and only coffee of choice. And so, what do we do? What do we do, those of us who see this? What do we do, those of us who have been given a spirit of discernment, who see the truth? Is it something to boast about? No, absolutely not. Uh, 
Is it humbling? Yeah, absolutely. It's heartbreaking. It's crushing to see the demonic, to see Christians participate in what is demonic. Week after week, I see Christian parents, for example, allow their children to go to school. And the schools are teaching that white people are innately racist and that we need to be ashamed of our melanin. Every week, the schools are teaching the children that there is no such thing as male or female, but simply whatever you identify as is what you are. So they take the gender signs off the bathrooms in the high schools. And the parents say, well, that's not really happening. And I challenge them and say, but I've seen it. I've heard it. It's made state news. It's made national news. Why don't you know these things? Your children attend school there. Have you talked to your children about the curriculum? Have you talked to your children about the bathrooms? And they don't because they don't want to know because they don't want to take responsibility for their choices. They don't want to have to sacrifice their job, their time, their income for their children, even though they say that they would do anything for their children. So they take them to sports tournaments. They take them to their camps. They take them to their extracurricular activities they do everything that they can for their child to cover up what is at root their shame, which is that they allow their children to participate in activities at their schools that are innately satanic and evil, contrary to the word of God. Then they come to church on Sunday and they hear my sermon and I call them out for this and they simply sit there, stoic, quiet, unmoving, and then go home and immediately forget about everything I said, because why? It's just your opinion, pastor. It's just your opinion. Even though something that I've begun to do more frequently now in all of my sermons is to quote the Bible specifically, so that rather than just read something that is out of the Bible and then move on, I read the text and then I quote, this is from Isaiah, this is from Romans, this is from Matthew. Because they don't read the Bible. They don't know what I'm saying is from the Bible. And unfortunately, they also don't believe that the Bible is an authority, that it doesn't have the final say. It doesn't have anything to teach them about being Christians or parents. It doesn't have anything to teach them about being children or citizens. It doesn't have anything to teach them because they grew up in church. They, they went to Sunday school. They've been through confirmation classes. They got married in church. They attend funerals at church. They participate in the fundraisers at church. That is that they have a house that they have built, but they did not lay any foundation for that house. And so their faith is faith in their churchianity. Their faith is their faith in themselves and what they believe, but not in Jesus. So when the devil comes, when his angels come, when evil spirits come and attack, they don't know that. They don't see that because they don't actually believe in those things. And that's the tragedy, is how many Christians don't believe in any of the things that the Bible teaches. They see it as a book of mythology or fairy tales, or they see it as a manual for how to behave, and yet they don't read it, ironically. Basic instructions before leaving earth, that's what they're taught. B-I-B-L-E, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth, which is just radically juvenile 
and naive because that's not what the Bible's about. It's not an instruction manual for how to get to heaven. The Bible's about Jesus. He himself says that. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find life, but they testify to me. Every page of the Bible is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. But we think it points to us. And since it points to us, and since we already have a pretty good handle on things, we think, we imagine, we don't need to read it. Because I was taught everything I need to believe about God when I was six or 15. I meet pastors like that all the time. They haven't changed their opinion about the Christian faith since they were in Sunday school. And not for good reasons either. It's that idea that once I read a book, once I learn something, once I do something, I don't have to keep doing it. I don't have to keep practicing. I don't have to keep training because I've got it. Imagine going to jujitsu, for example, or Muay Thai for a month and learning the basics of that martial art and then saying, I'm good for the rest of my life. I know what I'm doing. If I ever needed to get into a fight for any reason, I can take care of myself because I attended Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu for a month. Or worse, you attend a weekend seminar where you learn self-defense tactics Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then walk away saying, well, I'm good. I'll go back next year for another seminar to, you know, tune it up and update my, my knowledge. But three days is good enough. I know how to handle a weapon. I know how to defend myself in a physical altercation. Well, that's not naivety. That's just you being a fool. No one who is serious, no one who has an IQ above 50 thinks that attending some seminar, some retreat for three days is going to prepare you to protect and defend yourself or others in a real fight. And yet, people delude themselves all the time. And they do exactly that. It's the same way for people that attend church once a week. They put in their one hour of God time and think, I'm good. Are you? You're engaged in war. And you're saying that you practiced once a week for war? You think you're prepared for the assaults of the devil and his angels? Do you think that you are more powerful than one evil spirit? whom you don't even believe exists. You think that you can stand against culture? You couldn't even stand up against a mandate, which isn't even a law. And so I want to dive into this whole matter of spiritual warfare today about praying down evil. I wrote this article and published it yesterday on spotterup.com. I'll include a, a link in the show notes to the article if you'd like to read it for yourself or share it with others. But this is called Praying Down Evil, the Christian's Battle Cry. In the relentless battle space of spiritual warfare, where the fires of sin and temptation constantly threaten to burn down our faith and our lives, Christians are called by God to stand as warriors of faith. And so we take heart the words of Psalm 119, verse 11, quote, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And like King David, who faced the giant Goliath with nothing but a sling and his unwavering trust in God, which is in 1 Samuel 17, if you would like to go and read that account, we stand against the giants of our time, the adversaries of the Lord, armed with an unshakable faith that comes from the Holy Spirit and God's word. With unwavering resolve, then, we lift our voices in prayer. 
joining our voices with the psalmist who cried out, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Psalm 61, verse 1. Hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. Our prayers, then, are not feeble murmurs, but resounding declarations of our reliance on God the Father Almighty. We draw inspiration, for example, from the prophet Elijah, who in the face of overwhelming odds, prayed fervently for God's intervention and witnessed fire descending from the heavens. 1 Kings 18, verses 36 through 38. In our prayers, too, we invoke the power of God's divine intervention, knowing that our petitions are heard in the heavenly courts. So that as we engage in this fierce spiritual warfare, we are encouraged by God's word to invoke the legacy of the brethren who came before us. For example, the Apostle Paul's words encourage us to remember that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Think about that. Lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely to us. Lay it aside. Put it aside for a moment. Stop worrying about how sinful you are or how you have sinned. Put that aside. Put that weight down. And instead, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all of the Christians who came before us, who now surround us, let us run with endurance the race then that is set before us, in front of us. Endurance, stamina, perseverance. We are not called to hear this verse once and then walk away thinking, that's good enough. That would be like eating a single candy and treating it as if it's Thanksgiving dinner. But rather, lay away the weight, lay aside the weight, sorry. Lay aside sin for a moment that clings so closely to us. Just lay that aside. Put that off to the side. Stop worrying so much. You're a Christian. But rather, what's in front of you? Because so often, what is the sin that we worry about? The selfish, self-interestedness, the self-centeredness, and all of its consequences. Where is that found most often? It's found behind us. When we think at our past, when we think at what happened yesterday, when we turn our attention away from what's in front of us, and we look over our shoulder at what's behind us. There's an old saying, old theologian, I can't remember the preacher at the moment, but he said, many Christians back into heaven because they fear the fires of hell. Meaning they're so, they're so worried about their past that they actually end up backing into heaven. Because in their past, they say, I've sinned so much, I've done so much wrong, I've committed so much evil, I've done so much hurt and harm to myself and others. There's no way that God could forgive this. And they become so fixated on their past and the sins of their past and the harm that they've done that they don't see what's in front of them, which is the resurrection to eternal life. They don't see what's in front of them, which is Jesus and the resurrection to eternal life at the last day. They don't see that they walk in forgiveness the whole way. They don't see the new life that God has provided for them. They don't see that the person that they were is not the person that they are and that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. They don't see the new life. They don't live in the hope of eternal salvation, so they don't move forward. They don't move through that guilt and that anxiety and that shame. 
Instead, they turn around and they walk backwards. And so they can't lay aside the weight. They can't put sin to the side for a moment because they're not running the race with endurance. They're running it with fear and insecurity and anxiety because they're afraid that when they get to the end, when Jesus comes on the last day in glory to judge both the living and the dead, they're so afraid that he's going to judge them in the negative and say, I never knew you, get away from me, that they back their way into heaven. Whereas what the apostle is saying here in his letter to the Hebrew Christians is, run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's in front of us? What are we striving for? What we're striving for is the finish line. So we don't run backwards in a marathon. When I was in high school and college and I ran the 440, it's one, one lap around the track as fast as you can go. You never, ever look over your shoulder. You hear the footsteps behind you. You hear the breathing. You hear it. And you hear it getting closer and closer and closer. And everything in you wants to look over your shoulder. Everything in you wants to take a quick glance to the left and the right to see how close are they. And you have to override that. And when you hear the footsteps, tip, 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 tip. When you hear the breathing and you feel it like horses pulling at the wagon, at the chariot, you hear them coming up behind you. You have to bite down and you have to pump your arms even harder and you have to feel that lightness in your step and you have to propel yourself forward and you have to grab the air in front of you and use it like a rope and make it substantial and just grasp at it and pull until you cross that finish line. And even if they're passing you on the track, you don't look. Because why? Because who is to the left and to the right doesn't matter. Because the race isn't really against them. It's against the clock. And that clock is inside your head. It's inside your heart. And yet you want to say, they're going faster than me. And as soon as you think that, you skip a step, you skip a heartbeat, you hesitate, and all is lost. And so you run with endurance the race that is set before you because you're striving for the finish line. And it doesn't matter if they finish ahead of you or behind you or it's a tie. You're running against the clock. You're running for a new best time. And if that best time is better than everyone else's best times in the other seven lanes, great. If it's your best time, but you get third, for example, great. Train harder. Focus on the next track meet. Focus on the next 400 meters. Push yourself, but keep moving forward. It's like I've talked about before. One of the most valuable things that anyone ever said to me is don't try and get past things, right? Don't move past them. So when someone dies, for example, and we mourn their, their passing, and then someone will say, okay, it's time to move on. It's time to get on with life now. We can't keep walking around with long faces and be sad. We have to move on. There are some things you can't move on from. I have friends who have lost children, who have buried their children. Sorry, they haven't lost them. They know exactly where they're at. But I've had friends who have buried their children. You don't move on from that. You don't get past that. You buried your child. And for a parent, that now is an open wound that bleeds for the rest of your life and it will never scab over. Never. It will never heal. 
That's a cross that you have to carry for the rest of your life now. And it's horrible. But yet, you have to learn to move through that pain and move through that suffering and mourning. And you have to use that because that cross isn't coming off. It's on you now. You're carrying that cross. And as the apostle says, that when we are weak, he is strong. In our weakness, God is strong. Because what happens then? We cry out to God in our weakness. God, save my child. God, keep my child in your bosom until the last day when I can be reunited with him or her. God, give me the strength to get out of bed this morning. Give me the strength to put down the bottle. Give me the strength to put down the bottle of pills. Give me the strength to smile. Give me the strength to have a thought that doesn't revolve around a memory of my child. Help me to move through this. That's endurance. That's perseverance. That's stamina. Because why? Because what's behind me? Death. Regret. Mourning. Misery. Lost hope. Failed dreams. What's in front of me? My son or my daughter waiting for me in the resurrection. What's in front of me? Jesus. What's in front of me? Hope. What's in front of me? Forgiveness, life, and salvation. So run with endurance the race that is set before us. Move forward. So that likewise, then we remember the faith of Abraham, who trusted God's promise of a son even in his old age, in Genesis 15, verse 5. And further than that, we draw strength from the courage of Esther, who risked her life to save her people. Esther chapter 4, verse 16. Just as the Holy Spirit strengthened them in unwavering faith to face whatever obstacle was put in front of them, he is the one who uses their experience to fuel our determination to stand firm in the face of adversity. These are the great cloud of witnesses that I referred to. Esther, Abraham, the Apostle Paul, and others. We read about their experiences in the Bible. We read how God saved them in the midst of their troubles, how he strengthened them, how he defeated armies for them, how he rescued their people through them, and how he worked in and with and through them as his instruments of salvation. And so that in the present tense, we can say, what you did for Abraham, do for me. What you did for Esther, do for me. And in that then, when those obstacles come against us in the exact same way they came against them, we can draw strength from that. We can turn to God in prayer and say, as you did for them, do for us. Because you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Use their experiences to fuel my determination to stand firm in the face of adversity. So that I know that I am a part of a legacy that spans generations. So that in this battle space of spiritual warfare, we know we're not alone. We are part of an unbroken chain of believers, a great cloud of witnesses, as they are called, who have fought the good fight, have finished the race, and have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. But how do we do that? Well, we're given a sword, which is God's word. And we are given a shield, which is faith. So that in one hand we hold God's word, which is the sword, and in the other we hold the shield of faith. And with these weapons, the word of God and faith, we press forward. We move 
forward, determined to overcome the assaults of sin and temptation that threaten to defeat us every single day. We are called into service to God as warriors of faith, marching in the footsteps of those who have gone before us, confident that the God who delivered David from Goliath, answered Elijah's prayers, and upheld the faith of Abraham and Esther, is the same God who stands with us in our battles today. So where does the battle begin? It begins with us. It begins within. As Christian soldiers, our first battleground is ourselves, where the enemy of sinful self-interest and self-centeredness daily afflicts us, driving us to care about only ourselves and our personal wants. And so in the quiet moments of personal reflection, we are encouraged to confront our own weaknesses and vulnerabilities Because as the Apostle Paul admonished us, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Romans chapter 7 verse 19. The good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil that I do not want to do, that I keep on doing. There is our frustration. There is our struggle, the battle, is that I want to do good. I've been given the mind of Christ in baptism. This is what the Bible testifies to. I've been given the mind of Christ in baptism. I want to do good. I want to live for God. I want to be a servant of Christ. But yet what I do is not godly, not good, not faithful, not charitable, not self-sacrificial, but self-serving. That's the evil that I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. And it is in these introspective moments, then, that the Psalms offer us solace and guidance. As we cry out with the psalmist, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51, verse 10. This heartfelt plea becomes our own, a fervent prayer etched into the very fiber of our being. Our prayers become the fiery forge, where the Holy Spirit purifies and refines our souls, much like the refining process described in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. God exposes us to the searing heat of self-examination and repentance so that our impurities may be consumed and he may draw us from the fire as tempered blades honed by the word of God ready for the battle that lies ahead. The Psalms, therefore, serve as our songs of preparation and sustenance, turning our cries of weakness into declarations of strength, as we find refuge in Psalm 18, verse 32. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. Psalm 18, verse 32. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. And so with hearts made clean by God's word and our spirits renewed by the Holy Spirit, we become formidable warriors, not through our own might, but through the power of prayer and the word of God. In these moments of self-confrontation and renewal, we are not broken, but forged anew, emerging from the fiery crucible as instruments of God's grace and righteousness, ready to stand firm against the forces of evil that threaten to envelop God's people and his work for them. 
But that's not all. There is a second battle that occurs every single day. It's not just ourselves that we wrestle with, but we are also called to confront the forces of this evil world. In the wider world, we confront the malevolent forces that seek to corrupt and divide and destroy God's good and gracious will, which is vividly portrayed in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This is no earthly battle. This is spiritual as well as earthly. And I think that's an important point to make because I see this all the time. You have Christians who make everything a spiritual battle, meaning it's all abstract. It has no teeth, no claws, no footing in concrete reality. It's all spiritual. But then I'll see other Christians who treat everything as an earthly conflict. It's all politics. It's all culture. It's all physical. And therefore, they don't see the spiritual behind it. Instead of it being both and rather than either or. To give an example in sobriety, for example. To give an example of sobriety, an example. That's nice. I'll just bookend it with the same thing. <laughs> Cheapers. And, <laughs> wow. Anyways, um, in sobriety, one of the things that I tell people that aren't alcoholics is that for you, you can put a bottle down on the table, bottle of wine, whiskey, whatever it might be. You can have a drink or two and then just put it away again because there's no spiritual force present with that bottle at the table that is enticing you to finish the whole bottle in one sitting. But when I sit down at the table with a bottle, on the other side of the table, there is a spirit, an evil spirit. This is why in the old days, we used to call alcohol spirits because they understood when you drink alcohol to excess, you are opening yourself up to spirits. When you take drugs in excess and abuse alcohol and drugs, you are opening yourself up to possession by spirits. And so don't do it. This is why drunkenness is a sin. Not because Christians are a bunch of teetotalers, but rather because when you become drunk or inebriated, when you get high, you open yourself up to spirits. And because you lack self-awareness and self-control when you're drunk or high, you don't shut the door. I know a guy. He took too many um, mushrooms and came back from his trip and declared that Jesus is a mushroom and therefore just swore off Christianity and church altogether and just dedicated his life to tripping balls on mushrooms all the time because Jesus is a mushroom. Well, it's not biblical. It's barely even logical. But he had been possessed, taken over by an evil spirit. And so there was no convincing him otherwise. We do not battle against just flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which means, as Christians, as people of faith, you must recognize that we are not just fighting an earthly battle or just a spiritual battle, but rather these authorities, these cosmic powers are possessing people, are working with people, are using people as their agents to bring about something for themselves. So when you look at a politician or a celebrity, an authority figure, an expert, 
a family member, a friend, whoever it might be, and you ask yourself, why do they act this way? Why are they doing things that are so plainly and obviously and explicitly wrong? Well, have you considered the spiritual side of the house? Have you considered that they may be possessed or they may be the agent of an evil spirit and that their will is not their own? They're being ridden like a horse this way and that way without even really realizing it because they have no discernment. They do not pray. They don't believe in God even because those who reject God are, of course, the most open to attack. They're the easiest to defeat because they don't even believe there's a war going on. And so we don't wrestle just against flesh and blood, but rather we recognize that those flesh and blood people are possessed or are being ridden around by evil spirits and by fallen angels and by the devil, who is the prince of this world, as both Jesus and the Apostle Paul declare. So voting will not make things better. Going to church will not automatically make things better for you. Going to counseling, going to AA, going to rehab, reading books about how to improve your life, going to the gym will not simply make your life better because you're only addressing one half of the whole. It's like I was saying to someone the other night because their family member is on the keto diet, but yet not. So they claim to be eating keto, but at the same time, they're not exercising. They're not changing their sleep patterns. Essentially, they're eating a lot of fatty food, putting in a lot of protein, but yet not exercising, not burning calories, not changing their lifestyle. And so instead of losing weight, of course, they're gaining weight. To which I then said, well, of course you're gaining weight. You're eating excessive amounts of fat and excessive amounts of protein. You're eating a high calorie diet and it is nutritive dense, but you're also not exercising. So it's only calories in. So of course the diet's going to fail. You're not doing it properly. You're only considering one half of the whole. Eating the right foods doesn't automatically mean you start to lose weight. That's not how this works. It's not magic. It's not alchemy. Calories in calories out. But of course, it's easier to just eat a lot of meat, for example, and say, look, I'm eating healthy. And you are, you're eating healthy, nutritive, dense foods. However, you've changed nothing else about your life. You're still sedentary. You still sleep three to four hours a night. You still lack movement. You don't exercise. And therefore, what happens? Your physical deficiencies affect you mentally and your mental deficiencies affect you emotionally and your emotional deficiencies affect you physically. It's a circle. It's overlapping, right? It's a tripartite system. Strong body, strong mind, strong mind, strong emotion, strong emotion, strong body. If any one of those slips, it all falls apart. So you can't just say, I'm going to change my diet. You have to change everything. If you want to get stronger, if you want to grow and mature and become a healthier person, you have to change everything. But we always want to take the shortcut. We want the hack. Well, if I just eat the keto diet, I'll be fine and I'll lose all this weight. No, it's, that's not how it works. That's why a lot of these diets are fads because the people that adhere to the diet and do it correctly, they inspire other people to take up the diet, 
But those people that are inspired, well, they don't follow through. And when it falls apart, they don't correct themselves. They don't check themselves. They don't self-reflect. They don't seek more information. Instead, they just quit and move on to the next fad. And therefore, they go from bad to worse until finally they just give up because they're not willing to put in the work. Likewise, when we're dealing with spiritual warfare, we're not just fighting against men and women. We're not just fighting against demons. We're fighting against all of it altogether. But that ultimately what we're facing are cosmic powers that rule over this present darkness. So the Apostle Paul's words then to the Ephesian Christians serve as a rallying cry that echo through the ages, reminding us that our battle is not against mere mortals, but against the very powers that orchestrate the chaos and the division that is enveloping our world. So as we take up the armor of faith and prayer, our petitions become the thunderous drumbeat of resistance, a throaty war song that reverberates through the spiritual realms. I cannot emphasize this enough. I am just as guilty as anybody, if not more so. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Your primary weapon against the evil one, against evil spirits, against unbelief, doubt, depression, guilt, is prayer. And if you don't know what to pray, learn the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says to his disciples, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. In Matthew's gospel, it's formed as a command. Pray the Psalms. You don't even have to buy a Bible. Go buy the Psalter. Just buy the book of Psalms in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Use it as a prayer book. Put it in your back pocket. But pray. Pray in the morning, at lunch, and in bed at night. Pray with your family. Teach your children how to pray. Be a model of prayer for your children. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your coworkers. Pray with your teammates. Everywhere and anywhere you have opportunity. When someone says they're struggling, when someone says they're having relationship problems, when someone says they're thinking about quitting at the gym or their job, when someone says they just don't feel inspired at church anymore, pray with them right there. Pray the psalm with them. Pray spontaneously. Ask God to give them the strength. Pray that God would send a preacher to give them his word. Pray that God would fortify them and give them perseverance, endurance for the race ahead. Pray always because our prayer, our speaking with God the Father, is our primary weapon. Because what we're doing is we're asking God to bring his strength to bear on this trouble, this struggle, this affliction. And why would I lean on my own strength when I have God's strength to lean on? If the devil is more powerful than all of the men on earth combined, and he's simply a creature, he's, he's a creature of God, the devil. He's not a God. He's not divinity. He's not a demigod. He's a creature of God, and yet he's more powerful than all of the men on earth combined. If that's true of the devil, then what is it to be said of God the Father Almighty and his strength and his power? Pray. Cry out to God. Pray to your Heavenly Father just like dear children cry out to their father when they're in trouble. When my kids get in trouble, Dad, Dad, I need your help. And what do I do? Come running. Why? Because I'm their father, and that's what fathers do. And so when you cry out to your Heavenly Father, He comes running. He's there. He's there for you. His promises are the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. They're there for you. So therefore, cry out. At every opportunity on the commute, when you're sitting at your desk, when you're running on the treadmill, when you're rolling on the mats, when you're sitting at the dinner table, pray. Pray your prayers. God hears them. He promises to hear them. You are his beloved children, so act like it. You're not orphans. So many Christians cry out to their Heavenly Father on Sunday and then act like orphans the rest of the week. Take up the full armor of faith and prayer. Pray down the powers of chaos and division that have enveloped our world. Pray down this demonic culture. Ask God to bring the full weight of his judgment against those who do evil, against our people. 98% of the population are simply geese. That's all they are. They're just geese. They don't know their left hand from their right. They have no discernment. They're just marching in step. They're not even geese. I correct myself. They're penguins. I think back to Penguins of Madagascar. I always go back to that because I love that movie. It's so great. The beginning of the movie, all these penguins are marching in one straight line like penguins do. And the, three, the one penguin's like, where are we going? <laughs> like, where are we marching to? Why do we have to go this way every time? That's 98% of the population. They're not malevolent. They're not malicious. They're just penguins marching in step, marching in line with all the other penguins, unquestioning. Why? Because this is what we do. Well, who said this is what we do? I don't know, somebody. Pray for them. Pray that they might given, be given discernment. Pray that they might be given strength. Pray that they might be given faith so they can actually see what's happening. Consider the example of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 through 23. His faith was made steadfast by God's protection and thus, as a result, shook the foundations of the world as the lions, who were meant to devour him, became powerless adversaries. They simply hung out with him. They were no better than house cats. And in the same way, in our prayers, God leads us to emulate Daniel's unwavering resolve, trusting in the one who silences the roaring lions of this world. If you want Klaus Schwab to shut up, like I do, if you want George Soros or Bill Gates or any of these decrepit, degenerate politicians who claim to represent us, if you want them silenced, then ask God to do it. And he will. Pray without ceasing. Jesus tells this parable about this widow and this judge. And the widow went to the judge and she didn't get the ruling from the judge that she wanted. So she kept bothering him. She'd show up for, for uh, court every day to bother him until finally she got kicked out of court. So then she would go to his house and she would stand outside his house. And every time he came out of his house, she would badger him and follow him around and demand that he give her the judgment that she needed, that she deserved. And so finally she did. She got it. He gave her the judgment that she was asking for because she would not stop. She would not relent. That is a parable about prayer. It's a parable about going to our Heavenly Father. It's a parable about going to Jesus and saying, you promised. You promised to protect us. You promised to be our refuge and our strength. You promised that if we asked you as your dear children, that as our Heavenly Father, you would do this. Okay. Well, I'm calling on you again. That there are lions. There are lions in the land and they are devouring my people and they are threatening to devour me. So Lord, bring the full weight of your judgment down upon them. 
Bring the weight of your judgment down upon the Senate and the Congress. Bring your weight of your judgment down upon the White House. Bring the weight of your judgment down upon Hollywood, upon the World Economic Forum, the IMF, the UN, the NATO. Bring the weight of your full judgment down upon these people and all who would do us harm. And he will, because he has promised to do so, just like he did for Daniel. And likewise, the story of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, reminds us that even in the face of seemingly insurmountable giants, God uses our prayers, like David's sling as potent weapons. And thus armed with faith and conviction, we are sent out by the Lord of armies to confront the giants of injustice, oppression, and division that threaten to silence God's word and drive away people from knowing his salvation and peace. So our prayers are not mutterings of the feeble. They are the battle cries of the valiant. As instruments of God's justice, in this relentless struggle, we are given to wield the word of God as a double-edged sword, proclaiming its truths with unwavering resolve. And in the face of adversity, God strengthens us to stand firm, declaring that our God is mighty to save, and through him we shall overcome the forces of this evil, dying world. And third, the third and the most important battle is with the devil. In the voluminous history of spiritual warfare, the devil stands as the ancient adversary, prowling like a ravenous lion, seeking souls to ensnare and devour, as Peter warns us, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. The devil's assaults are unrelenting a ceaseless barrage of temptations and deceptions meant to drag us into the abyss of fear, unbelief, and despair. But in this conflict, our prayers run out like trumpet blasts as a call to arms, reverberating with the echoes of David's defiance in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Let's repeat that. The Lord is my light in the darkness, my salvation in the midst of judgment and condemnation. So then who should I be afraid of? Who, who will I fear? If the Lord is my light in the darkness and my salvation in the midst of judgment, who do I need to be afraid of? The Lord is the stronghold, the fortress, the castle, the mighty fortress of my life. Who can scale these walls? Who can penetrate them? So then who do I have to be afraid of? We are armed by God with the impenetrable armor of faith. We invoke the protective mantle of Christ who declared, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Luke chapter 10 verse 19. With an unyielding determination, reminiscent of Joshua's unwavering resolve to conquer the promised land, we stand as warriors in Christ. We do not retreat in the face of the evil one's attacks. Instead, we advance, pushing back the forces of evil, the evil one, with each fervent plea. So that just as Joshua, by God's direction, commanded the sun to stand still in battle, Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, we are given the same divine authority. The same we are given the same authority as Joshua to command the forces of the evil one to yield to the radiant truth of God's word. 
So our prayers are the fortress walls against which the enemy's assaults shatter like waves upon the rock. And so in our unyielding battle, our battle against sin, against this world, and against the evil one, God turns our prayers into thunderclaps of hope, a clarion call of faith, an unbreakable bond of unity among believers. And therefore, as we are called by our Redeemer Savior, Jesus the Christ, to engage in this spiritual warfare, we do not cower in fear, but are raised by God as champions of the faith, knowing that through Christ, we are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Our prayers are not whispers in the dark. They are the battle cries that pierce the heavens and the earth, declaring that the victory is already won in the name of our Lord, who is Jesus Christ. And again, that is praying down evil, the Christian's battle cry, an article I published yesterday at spotterup.com. And like I said, I'll include that article in the show notes so that you can read it for yourself, share it with others. You can sit down with a men's group or a women's group and sit down with your family and read it and discuss it. Have a conversation about spiritual warfare. This is no joke. Throughout the Bible, as I noted in my quotations, it's not just the Gospels, it's not just the New Testament epistles, it's not just the Old Testament. Everywhere in the Bible, we are called to call on God, to pray. We are called to proclaim the name of Jesus with power, that we are given divine authority to command the forces of evil to halt, to stop, and that ultimately we have the power of God on our side. We have the strength of God on our side. So we're not in this alone, and we don't have to go alone. We have an army of angels. We have a great cloud of witnesses, all the Christians that have come before us and fought the battles before us. We have their prayers, we have their words, we have their experiences that we can lean into. And all of those prayers, all of those experiences, all of those battles point back to God, who saved them in the midst of their troubles and their struggles and their afflictions. And so the war is over. Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin, the world, and hell. And when we are in Christ, then, through our faith in him, our trust in him as our Lord and Savior, as our God, we cannot be defeated. It is impossible for us to be defeated. Even if the enemy kills us, he will simply raise us from the dead. So why should we be afraid? Why shall we fear? God is the light in the darkness. God is my strength. God is my salvation in the midst of judgment. So let the government judge you. Let culture damn you. Let them devise their plans and their schemes because as Psalm 2 says, God who sits in the heavens mocks them. He derides them. He ridicules them for their silly little plans and their rebellion against him. In the end, they don't have a leg to stand on. That's why they fight so violently. That's why they're so relentless in their attacks. They're fighting a war that they've already lost. Even if they can't acknowledge that, even if they can't name that because they're so spiritually blind, they're so possessed by evil that they can't see the truth. Okay. But that's for us then to preach, for us to teach, and for us to pray. First to our families, 
to our churches, to our neighborhoods. But ultimately, whoever God calls us to stand before, whether it be kings and princes or our neighbor, this is what we preach. This is what we proclaim. This is what we pray. This is our endurance, and it's what sustains us through the fights. And I know it gets rough. I know it's exhausting. The last two weeks, I have just wanted to quit everything and just withdraw. But in those moments, I know I'm being afflicted by my own self-interests, by sin. The culture has got me down because it seems like it's winning, doesn't it? The demons seem to be winning. It seems that we are powerless to stop what's coming. The authoritarianism, the fascism, this kind of anarcho-technocracy. It seems that we are powerless to stop it. And to be matter of fact about it, we are powerless. We're just individuals. And even if we joined together and formed an army, they have a bigger army. They have more weapons at their disposal. And so this is why I don't trust in men or any man, ultimately, for my salvation. I don't trust in politicians to save me. I don't trust in scientists and experts. I don't trust in armies. I trust in God because he is the Lord of armies. He is my creator, my redeemer, and my sustainer. He is the one who declares us holy in his name. And so we are his saints. We are his warrior saints, like Joshua, like David, like Abraham, And as warrior saints, our first weapon is God's word. Our defense is our faith. And our power comes not from ourselves, but from the name of Jesus, which overthrows every authority on earth and in the heavens and under the earth, as Paul says. Because again, Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. At the name of Jesus, the devil and all of his angels must flee. And therefore, when you fight, invoke the name of Jesus. Say it out loud. Command the demons to flee. Because in the name of Jesus and in the power of his word, in the presence of his Holy Spirit, they must and they will. So that's all I got for today. I hope that was helpful. I hope that helped inspire you and point you in the right direction. Like I said, spread the message. Stand strong. Endure face forward, move forward. We have already won. In Christ's name, we have already won. Talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.